Welcome to Psalm Springs, a podcast dedicated to an open and hopefully inspirational discussion of the biblical book of Psalms. We come to you each week with different aspects and different views of the ancient text and how those texts might inform our lives today. Welcome to another segment of our podcast, Psalm Springs, here in the California desert where a bunch of us get together from time to time to try to make sense of the ancient book of Psalms, the 150 different poems, how they were used when they were written and what they meant over the last 3,000, 2,500 years and what they might mean today. And our guest today is my very good friend and teacher, Father Andrew Green. Welcome, Andrew. Hello, it is my pleasure to be here and to once again talk with you about Psalm Springs. So you, speaking of Palm Springs, you've been in Palm Springs for a long time, haven't you? Uh, about 30 and a half years. Right, and you were at uh, St. Paul's of the Desert until your recent retirement, and now you're just enjoying life, eh? I am, as I figure out where we're, where we're going next. I'm processing uh, some significant health issues in the family, but uh, we're moving forward. Well, it's wonderful to not only see you here today as we record this, but uh, once a week at our coffee that I look forward to is you educate me in the uh, methodology of, of, of the study of the New Testament and communal work with your experience and in general your geekiness. Well, and I appreciate that. I'm, I am a, uh, I fly the geek flag all the time and I love visiting with you and hearing a very different context and a more ancient context for something that as a Christian pastor, I too often take for granted. Let's get to the psalm that you've chosen to, uh, to study together today. Uh, that would be Psalm 51. And if I could ask you first to read it from the translation of your choice. The translation that I'm reading it from is from the, the Episcopal Church's Book of Common Prayer. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. In your great compassion, blot out my offenses. Wash me through and through from my wickedness and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so you are justified when you speak and upright in your judgment. Indeed, I have been wicked from my birth a sinner from my mother's womb. For behold, you look for truth deep within me and will make me understand wisdom secretly. Purge me from my sin and I shall be pure. Wash me and I shall be clean indeed. Make me hear of the joy of joy and gladness that the body you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Give me the joy of your saving help again and sustain me with your bountiful spirit. I think that probably is enough for us to discuss. There's a, another 10 verses. Okay. And and why is it that you chose this, first of all, the or this uh, psalm of all the psalms we could have spoken about? 
I guess when I think of psalms in general, the psalms are something that as a uh, as, as a person whose prayer life, however well I follow this discipline, is based on the daily office, meaning morning and evening prayer daily and the variety of scriptures that are part of that. The psalms are read monthly in that discipline. In addition to that, Psalm 51 pops up many times in our liturgical, our worship calendar in the Episcopal Church. And the place that I'm most familiar with it is on Ash Wednesday, when uh, we make, it's one of the two major fast days in the church when people are actually expected to not eat and to really concentrate on looking at their lives in preparation for a holy season of Lent and ultimately Easter. And so Psalm 51 shows up a lot. I'm guessing especially on those occasions, or maybe only on those occasions, where the individual is is uh, is called upon to repent, to do tshuva. Repentance is, is really important. It shows up in Lent in a couple different years. And when it's used for worship in worship outside of Ash Wednesday, the psalm is always a response to the Hebrew scripture reading. Mm. So once it's a passage from Genesis, another time I believe it's a passage from Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. And so in those particular passages, which I don't think we have time to really get into today, um, it's a response to some kind of a mention of sin or sacrifice. This 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 psalm doesn't really find its way into Jewish liturgy in its entirety. Now, unlike some of the psalms that are said um, uh, on a daily basis or every week on the Sabbath, um, the, but there are many, many lines from this psalm that have found their way into the liturgy, especially around the High Holidays and the asking of forgiveness and, and trying to change our ways. Um, but I remember one line from this psalm in particular, uh, verse 12, that was very popular when I was growing up. There was a song that that went like this. Lev tahobra ali Elohim, v'ruach nachon chadesh bekirbi, al tashlicheni milfanecha. I made it a little shorter, but that was a song that we often sang Shabbat afternoon, time of reflection, uh, a time of uh, being a little bit more somber. Is that what, what do you have to say about that verse, verse 12? Verse 12, in our translation, in the um, Book of Common Prayer translation, Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And in a sense, it's kind of at the heart of a Christian response to the reality of the brokenness of relationship that we we see exists between person and person and between human and God, between me and God. Mm. Uh, it can be very personalized and it invites us to never think that those relationships must remain broken, but always to desire to keep in connection with God. And in a sense, to me, the the best response to any kind of uh, a confession or a 
confession or something like that is something that rebuilds relationship. Mm-hmm. So if if I have sinned against, if I have uh, broken my relationship with someone, the outcome is more than anything else. How can that relationship be renewed or rebuilt? And in the context of you know covenant kinds of kinds of relationship, it's the idea that uh, messing something up doesn't necessarily mean the end of a relationship, but a renewal of covenant is not automatic. Right. So as as uh, as they say in the uh, out here quite a bit, those that are involved in twelve step programs, the making of amends is a very important issue. It's not just asking for forgiveness, right. but actually making amends. Right. So, Andrew, taking this particular psalm and your experience over decades of working in a, in, a, in, a, in a church community, in a faith community, and I might add an Episcopal faith community, um, how do people understand confession? Uh, what, and how do they understand? I know it's not like uh, your work has not been, for instance, like we see in the movies in a Catholic church of... You know, sitting in the in the little booth there with the, the chamber. What's that called? The confession. The confessional. The confessional. Um, so, how have you seen that play out over the last few decades? Well, I guess rather than talk about um, exactly how people understand confession, I'm in the Episcopal context. I'm far more comfortable with the twelve-step context. Mm. You know, I think there's amusing things about the different ways Episcopalians understand confession. But I think in the 12-step program, which you know starts out with people admitting that they were powerless over alcohol and that their lives had become unmanageable, that they came to believe there was a power greater than themselves that could restore them to sanity, that they turned their lives over to the care and keeping of God or that higher power as they understand it. And then fourth step uh, made a spiritual and searching moral inventory of their life. And then the fifth step admitted to themselves, to God, and to one other person the exact nature of their wrongs. Now, I've probably heard 450 fifth steps. And people who do that are generally, generally very well prepared when they come to speak to me. And... The context is not judgmental, but the context is uh, an opportunity for them to really let go of everything. And I remember hearing that when you say it to someone else, it's the first time you've heard it yourself. And so the critical pieces of that are not just receiving forgiveness, but understanding that, which is in step eight, making amends. The idea of taking those things that they finally admitted taken and taken responsibility for and where they can, where it would not negatively impact the people involved, where they take specific steps to undo the damage or to personally reconnect around that. And I, I think that that's far more substantial, much more uh, significant than just a general, God, I'm sorry I did all that, and let's move on. Because mm. uh, I think that's too simple. Right. You may know that in, uh, that in the Jewish tradition, uh, especially around this time of year, we're in the beginning of the month of Elul now, the month, last month of the year before the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah and then Yom Kippur, uh, there is a Talmudic tradition that says um, in order to be uh, atoned, in order to be actually forgiven on Yom Kippur, it's not enough just to say, 
to pray for forgiveness, uh, you have to actually go to the person. So between you and God, you'll handle that. You, you, that'll be all right. But if you have something you need to confess to uh, with an, as vis-a-vis another person, you actually need to go and apologize to that person. I would say what's added my, to my understanding of that since I've been introduced to the whole 12-step world after coming to Palm Springs is that um, the making of amends is not just saying you're sorry. You've got to see, you know, what 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 can be done if possible. Right. Because that what's the end of that sentence in the twelve steps to make amends, unless it would do further damage or something like that. Uh, and made amends, except when to do so would injure them or others. Right. That that caveat at the end, I think, is very important as well. Sometimes people, in a very selfish way, uh, they're so they're they're still in their very narcissistic state. They want to go ahead and. And admit to everybody else, but sometimes that'll do actually more damage. That's right. That's right. And so it's complicated. Yeah. But I think that the 12-step approach, much of which was developed by some Episcopalians and Roman Catholics, allows us to do, I think, what this psalm talks about. How do we work from a place of a broken heart? And how does that broken heart be rebuilt and the broken heart that is symbolic of the broken relationships and how do those relationships get restored. And the confession piece is actually quite easy. The restoration piece is tough. And in so many ways in life today, even even many public media, social media kinds of ways of finding out what people have done and putting it on the news, all of a sudden makes everybody aware of all the broken relationships, but it doesn't actually develop in itself a pathway to restoration Mm -hmm. and often creates even more problems for those that were previously harmed. So I I think that this psalm is actually quite, quite significant because this idea of having a renewed spirit, having been broken and then been been rebuilt, being given new life. Right. That, that All was those what, things are really what I was referring to. To verse twelve was in, in the in the Hebrew scripture. Verse twelve is is create for me a new heart. Right. Create for me a new heart. Right. Yes. And so um, there's a, so that's that's something from my own personal background. That song is very much part of it's it's liturgy because we were singing it as prayer. There's another verse which is very common in Jewish prayer. It's at the beginning of each of the three silent prayers a day, morning, afternoon, and evening. And that's in Hebrew scripture. It's it's in verse 17. I'm guessing it's 16 in yours. Adonai sfatai tiftach latecha. Lord, please open my lips. Right? What, what Open my lips and my mouth shall proclaim your praise. You know, for years I taught kids in Israel. I taught kids about prayer. And uh, it struck me that asking God to open up your lips so that you can praise God reminded me of when we were kids and we asked our mother for money so we could buy our father a birthday present. Mm. Or, you know, it's kind of, it's at which when you look at it from afar, that's ridiculous, right? You should yeah. be giving something of your own. But there is something in that that uh, interrelationship that we that, that shows the depend, interdependency. Mm-hmm. Seems like even with the best of our intentions, we aren't always on our own able to accomplish what we intend. And one way we need help is we need God's help. Right. But the other way, and particularly from a 12-step perspective, is 
that higher power is often expressed by the other people sitting around the room, the other hands that God has made that are helping us to do what we intend. Mm-hmm. Right, that's the, the presence of God when people sit down in community, yeah. that communion. Yeah. Now, one of the one of the challenges is that the verse we were talking about in Hebrew earlier, which is not verse twelve, it's verse eleven. Right. Yeah. So, so that's the creating me a clean heart and right. renew a right spirit. Yeah, like creating a clean heart is really critical, yeah. How about the end? How do you understand the end of this psalm uh, starting, you know, from, from what you, I think it would be your verse. By the way, the difference in verse numbering has to do with the fact that the Hebrew includes the titles of the psalms as the first verse. Um, and it's interesting when when Jews often pray these these psalms in a liturgical fashion, they really don't differentiate between the text itself and the title beforehand, um, which is interesting. It's an interesting commentary. I hope it, it's it's not just because people didn't know what they were saying. You know, this is the instruction to the conductor, those kind of, of titles. So, so they're actually singing the instructions. Very often, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because it's been, you know, disconnected from its its original Zitzenleben, you know, that's its place in life. Historically, as far as the Christian tradition is concerned, this psalm is called the Miserere Mei Deus, which is the first line of, in the Christian version, verse 1, have mercy on me, O God. Right. Of course, that in the Hebrew, there's actually two verses before that. One is the title of the verse. The second one is the setting, the literary setting. Yeah, yeah, that this is, you know, when uh, Nathan came, Nathan the prophet came to David. But towards the and end, for Christians, we ignore that. Yeah, we, so it's just not there at all. Right, and as a result, um, I can't remember when it was that I finally realized that this was about David, Bathsheba, and Nathan, and it changes the whole context. Right. Many would say those those were words that were added at a different time because it, it, it's yeah, it it doesn't necessarily look at this. We 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 approach the Book of Psalms as we do all. Biblical literature that it's layers and layers and uh, traditions and traditions that have been woven together. We get to the end of the end of the psalm though. This uh, there's this kind of um, talking against or polemicizing with this idea that you can make reparations, you can make amends uh, with God, you can repent through doing uh, ritual. Mm-hmm. It's not about the heart, but it's about the hand, so to speak. Like we look at towards the end of the psalm. Uh, if you could read for us, uh, say, uh, 17 onwards. Had you desired it, I would have offered sacrifice. But you take no delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifice of God is a troubled spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Be favorable and gracious to Zion and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem then you will be pleased with the appointed sacrifices, with burnt offerings and oblations. Then shall they offer young bullocks upon your altar. For us liberal progressive Jews that have been, oh, have been distancing ourselves from the prayers for the renewal of the temple, whether it is the sacri- animal sacrifices or whether it's the lack of uh, equality amongst people with priests being at a higher level than the rest of the people, whether it's the exclusion of women from anything that had to do with it, whether it's the laws of purity and impurity, whether it's the fact that on the Temple Mount there is another holy site right now, and that's to be respected as well. Many of us progressive Jews have, 
have been uncomfortable with using these kinds of words, the end especially. May it yes. be God's will that we go back to it. So uh, it's a little disappointing, but the verses before that, uh, I think many of us that have rebelled against the um, minutia of religious traditions, they're getting caught up in the details and thinking that that's the important part. And, you know, I think it, it, what are some of the, the rituals that you've seen over the last few decades that you think people have gotten so cut up in the ritual they forget what it stands for? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think that in some sense, that's the nature of, of liturgical ritual. Now, the symbolic things that one does in a liturgical setting have a technically different name, but for the moment, let's just call it all ritual. But there are ways in which this uh, this setting of always being sinful, um, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I was born in sin. There are numerous places traditionally in the communion liturgy, the Eucharistic liturgy. Um, I even witnessed it recently where in reading uh, the Eucharistic prayer, there's a place where you kind of beat your chest. Like we do, for those that can't see, like we do in the Jewish tradition for Ashamnu Bagadnu, when we do our confession around the High Holidays. And so there's this place, in not in a particular confessional context, but because of the confessional nature of the whole liturgy, where this idea of never being out of, disconnected from sin permeated the entire liturgy, there were all these places where the priest would beat his or, and now her chest while they were doing this. That kind of was out of fashion by the time I became a priest. I knew when to do it. I'd witnessed it, but it wasn't. But I recently just saw a priest doing exactly that. And that priest has been a priest even less time than I have. So it means that their mentors convinced them this was really critical. But I think it's an incredibly important understanding or change in understanding of the way we we do liturgy. I don't believe that sin is the central point of reference for everything we do. And I think that grace, if you will, Uh, The fact that in creation, God says that it's good, at least once on every day of creation, is where we begin. And the fact that there is brokenness need not be the starting place for absolutely everything. And it need not be the place that we return once we take little journeys off into goodness and gratefulness immediately we got to get back into sinfulness. Mm-hmm. And this has significant consequences in Episcopal in Christian theology because this idea of sacrifices, it was a significant criticism of the Jewish faith by early Christians and frankly by almost all continuing Christians that they were doing these useless sacrifices in the temple and Christians substituted the useful sacrifice of Jesus. But the ways in which we describe that sacrifice often are only around his death on the cross, not his confrontation of authorities and powers, not his standing up for people who were marginalized and whom he brought to the center. These are all ways of understanding atonement that have biblical, have historical and theological validity, but they're often subsumed under kind of a bloody atonement theory that comes from the late Middle Ages. 
One of the first uh, times I met you, I was in your church at St. Paul's, and you were, I forgot what the reading was, the scriptural reading, but I remember that your your lesson was having to, do, having to do with what is the essence of ritual and not getting caught up on the ritual itself. I forgot what it's called. What's the square that goes on top of the, the cup of wine? It's called the Paul, P-A-L-L. The Paul that goes on top of the... Chalice. Chalice, okay. And how, uh, and some people, you know, which way do you put it and when does it go on, when does it go off, and then reminding everybody that essentially it was there to keep the bugs out of the wine. Right, right. And how sometimes things can get uh, carried away. So so the the lessons here, I think, are are complex of this song. When we look at it, there's different different aspects of it, but the basic part of it is, is that Whatever we're doing, it's got to be something that comes, that influences, that not only changes our insight, our intentionality, but also our actions. Mm-hmm. Would you say that's the case? Oh, I, I would agree that, that it is the bottom line intention of relationship with God that we always have a new heart. And that whatever it takes for us to create that new heart is critical, but it's not just about beating our chests and saying we're sorry, it's about doing the things that one with a new heart would do differently than the one with the old broken heart. Right? As the psalm says in the Hebrew scripture, verse 14, you know, bring me back the, the joy of, of, of your redemption and, the, and this uh, generous spirit. Um, and then I will teach others. I will teach those who are not acting properly your ways. Uh, for me, it's it, you've got to. Tra- it's not enough the transformation between you and God, but you've got to carry it on into society. That's also called the twelfth step, <laughs> you know, of taking that message out to others. If you wonder where it came from, there we go. Yeah, and I will teach that. I will teach this bountiful spirit to others. And with that, we uh, we end. This is Rabbi David Lazar and Father Andrew Green. And uh, we want to thank you very much for spending time with us today. Thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure. Psalm Springs is a production of Or Hamid Bar, Light of the Desert, an organization dedicated to intellectual, spiritual, and social engagement with the Jewish tradition. We're based in Palm Springs, California. We'd like to give thanks to Madalena Garza for editing and everything else tech-like in this production. Please check us out at www.orhamidbar.org for more information. And if you'd like to sponsor a Psalm Springs episode, you can do so by going to our website. If you like what you've heard, please express it on iTunes, Apple, or Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.